I recently was able to finish the message that Christ had to the church in Ephesus, which is found in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. But this evening, uh, we're going to look at verse 8 through 11, which was Christ's message to the church in Smyrna. Beginning in verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we worship you in the beauty of your holiness. You're worthy to be praised. God, I pray for these next few minutes that we're together, God, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive to the word of truth. God, you tell us that the grass fades and the the actual flowers, they wither and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. Jesus, you said that heaven and earth would pass away, but your word would endure forever. Your word, God, is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. As David said, I pray that we too would take your word, cherish it, hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Our dear Father in heaven, we pray for your help, your strength, your blessings through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe the church of Jesus Christ today is perhaps being confronted with more persecution than ever before. In fact, here in America and abroad, the attack from the powers of darkness are relentless and they're vicious. In fact, church history reveals to us that Satan has actually continuously waged a persistent, hell-bent assault on the church. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 19, it says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here is a very, very important truth that we need to grip and get a hold of. One belongs either to Christ and his kingdom or to the evil world system that is Satan's domain. There's either those that belong in God's kingdom or those that belong in Satan's kingdom. There is the saved, there's the unsaved. There's only two kind of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved. 1 John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This text right here makes something very clear. As I just said, there's only two types of people that exist in the world according to John. The children of God, the children of Satan. And I love the word that the New American Standard English translation uses there, that there's something obvious about those who belong to God as compared to those who belong to the devil. It's obvious. It's a word in the Greek that actually means open to sight. It's visible. It's manifest. In other words, you can see and you can actually see manifest those who belong to Christ or those who belong to Satan. And because the whole evil world system belongs to Satan, Christians should stay clear of its corruption. In fact, there's three things that are for sure here in these texts here in 1 John. 1 John 5.19 says, Now we know that the whole world, that is this evil system, lies in the hands of the evil one. But also in 1 John 2.17 it says, The world is passing away in its lust. And then 1 John 2.17 also says, But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So three things are definite here. This world, its system, this evil, lies in the hands of the evil one. But this system that is evil is one day going to pass away. But the ones that will endure and remain eternally is those that do the will of God. That will of God is repentance towards God and faith in Christ where you put your faith and your trust in Christ. So as a result of this, <coughs> there's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. <coughs> Should we as Christians anticipate difficulties or persecutions or even suffering? Because when you look at the church in Smyrna here, you'll see that it was a church that was known for its tribulation and its suffering and its persecution. And so I think the question that needs to be answered, should we as Christians anticipate suffering? If we live for Christ on his terms, and if we indeed live our lives for the glory and the honor of Christ, should we as believers in this world, should we anticipate suffering, persecution, and tribulation? Well, I think the Bible answers that. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's emphatic. That is actually a promise. That for those that would choose to live their life godly, that is, they embrace the whole concept, the whole truth of sanctification your heart, your desire, your passion as a Christian is to be like Christ. The eternal plan and purpose of God for the church is conformity to Christ. And if that is the desire and the passion of your heart, you're going to be persecuted for it. Then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, he says here, don't get all bent out of shape and surprised in the way that, again, Peter uses suffering or persecution or tribulation. He identifies it as a fiery ordeal which is among you. 
He's saying, don't be surprised by that. Because again, if you desire and have passion to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. The church in Smyrna knew this. In fact, what is interesting here, out of all the seven churches, we know that Christ had a specific message for them. But except for the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, there was no rebuke or words of condemnation that came from Christ to the church in regards to some particular sin that he saw in that church. There was no rebuke for Smyrna, and there was no rebuke for Philadelphia. But yet they were recognized as a church that was being severely persecuted, and they suffered for it. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, Peter says, which comes upon you for your testing. Again, it's interesting that in this text, Jesus tells them, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison. And for what reason? So that you will be tested. Peter confirms that again. Don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal which is among you. It comes upon you for your testing. Not to show God anything or prove to God anything about you, but if anything, to expose your own heart before your own self. I think a lot of people are going to find out in these days that we live those who are genuinely his and those that are not. When the heat's turned up and, and again, the fiery ordeal gets more intense, and you find yourself being tested for the sake and the glory of Christ, what will you find in your heart? What will you believe? What will you do? What will you embrace? How will you live? And he says, comes upon you, Peter does, says, for your testing as though some strange thing was happening to you. So, Three things quickly. Don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal. It's coming. You will have it. It will occur. It was occurring in Smyrna. It's occurring today all around the world, all right here in America and other parts of the world. But he's saying here, don't be surprised by it because it's coming upon you for your testing. It's going to expose you. It's going to expose me. You're going to find out what you really believe. You'll find it what's really in your heart. And then he says that some strange thing is happening. This is not strange. This comes with the territory. Where there's a love for Christ, where there's a passion for Christ, where there's a desire to live godly in Christ, don't think it's strange when you suffer for the cause of Christ. So persecution, suffering is not out of the norm, but it's neither Neither is it without purpose as well. Peter would say in chapter 5, verse 10 of 1 Peter, he says, after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You mean to tell me that verse is saying here that after you suffer a while, a while, God, the God of all grace, who called you, that efficacious call, who calls you to himself, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That call was so efficacious, you came, that irresistible grace, again, you came to Christ, 
But with that call and that eternal glory that's in Christ, he's saying here, after you suffered a while, the Lord will use it to perfect you. And even the Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, knowing that he that begun a good work in you will complete it, or that word could be translated perfected in you. Or in other words, he will accomplish it. He will finish what he starts. But in this text, he says he'll use suffering to do it. He'll use suffering to do it. And what establishes you is the fact that he'll use it to perfect, to confirm, to validate, and even to strengthen you. Believers are to live with the recognition that the Lord's purposes for time ahead require some difficulties and pain now. Now. The truth is while the believer is individually under attack by the enemy, he is at the same time being individually perfected by the Lord. For the believer, there's a powerful comfort that we, that we don't toil or suffer in this world for no purpose. James even said in James 1, 2, and 4, you know what it says, consider it all joy. Now, is that a misprint? Is that really in the Bible? You mean when I'm going through a tough time, I'm to consider it joy? You mean in the midst of turmoil and distress and discomfort and persecution and suffering and tribulation for the sake of the cause of Christ, you mean to tell me that I can indeed live in the joy of the Lord? Absolutely. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 11.16 says that in God's presence there's fullness of joy. Our joy, this joy, is not based upon circumstance. It's a joy that's maintained through relationships with Christ that no matter what you go through, you maintain your joy that's not based upon your circumstance. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Wow. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word there, consider, could be, again, translated as count or evaluate. I think it goes without saying that the natural human response to trials is not to rejoice. So the believer must make a conscious commitment to face trials with joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Trials here speaks of trouble or something that breaks the pattern of peace and comfort or joy in someone's life. The verb form of the word trial there in James means to put someone or something to the test with a purpose in mind. That being the purpose of discovering that person's nature or that thing's quality. God allows such tests to prove and increase the strength and quality of one's faith and to demonstrate its validity. It is to say that every trial becomes a test of faith designed to strengthen. Designed to strengthen. Here's the point in this. For the Christian, there is no wasted suffering or persecution. For the believer who desires to live godly in Christ, who will be persecuted. There's no danger, there's no toil, 
There's no difficulty that is wasted. No such thing as meaningless difficulties, trials, or tests. The Lord is doing his work in us that best glorifies himself. God's doing what he's doing in his church for his own glory. In fact, the truth of the matter is that when when God provided redemption through Christ, he didn't provide that so that you could be redeemed and saved so that he could make much of you. But he saved you so you could make much of him. That's the truth. That's the gospel. That's what we are to believe when it comes to, again, this subject of persecution and suffering. Throughout its history, the more the church has been persecuted, the greater its purity. Greater its purity. John Newton said it well, didn't he? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace. Do you remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? When you look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, it says that Paul said, The Lord said to me when I sought the Lord that he might, three times praying to the Lord that the thorn in the flesh might depart. What was the Lord's response to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, and most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast, Paul says, about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. You'll find the word grace in the New Testament 155 times. The Greek word is charis, which which actually means, we know it, undeserved favor, unmerited favor from God. But yet we're talking about a grace that's so sufficient. There's no way it can be earned. There's no way it can be purchased. There's no way it can be merited. It is is an unmerited, undeserved favor of God, his grace. And if there was anyone that tapped into how sufficient that grace was, it was definitely the Apostle Paul. When I think about him, I think about in that same letter, the second letter to the Corinthian church, where in the the preceding chapter, which is chapter 11, chapter 11, Listen to what Paul said. He said in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a deep I found I have spent in the deep. I've been in 
I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And then this vision where he is actually caught up into the third heaven and begin to receive things that he was not even permitted to repeat. But yet the Lord deemed it necessary that in his providence to keep Paul from exalting himself and to maintain humility and spirit There was an angel of Satan that came to buffet him, which literally means beat him. It was a thorn in the flesh. It must have been very difficult because Paul prayed three times that it might leave him, depart from him. But what did the Lord say? He said to me, as I read, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Here's what's so important about this. Paul understood the all-sufficient grace of God. He knew it was grace that saved him. He knew it was grace that would keep him. He knew it was grace that would deliver him. He knew it was grace that would keep him. And all of these things he listed, all of these dangers, all these things he told us that he went through and was experiencing, not to mention all of the false teachers at the church in Corinth where, where they were making it their aim, they were relentless in doing so to try to harm him, to destroy him. I mean, it got so bad that they said Paul didn't even look good. He was not anything to be looked upon. He didn't have oratorical skills. He had sins in the closet. He had a hidden agenda. He was in ministry for himself. He was only watching out for himself. He had no credentials. He had no papers, et cetera, et cetera. And so we don't actually know specifically what the thorn in the flesh was, although I've read some pretty interesting thoughts about that over the years. And one was, you know, he had a sickness, could have had malaria. One was he had eye trouble because he talked about to the Galatians, see how large a letter I had to write to you which doesn't confirm anything as you exegete that text that would give you indication he he had anything wrong with his seeing. I guess there was a possibility, but that's not what it's implying. Then of all things, I heard one guy write in a commentary that he believed his thorn of flesh was his wife. He was never married. He, He remained single and served Christ to the day he died or was executed for the sake of Christ. So this grace that abounds, this grace that is sufficient, 
Again, the Lord said, my grace, saying this to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, there's dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. This power is dunamis, is perfected in weakness most gladly. He's just basically saying, you know, all these things, Paul, you've gone through and you will go through, even in your weakness, what I've done that what I've done that will keep you humble is understanding why the thorn's there, but also understanding even in your weakest moment, even at a time you feel like you can't bear another bit of trouble. I'm telling you, Paul, my grace is sufficient, and you will in your weakness find strength because of my grace that is there for you. I would hasten to add, though, I do believe that there's something to be said of where he talked about the daily cares and the concerns of the churches. It could have very well been that that might have been, maybe to some degree, more specifically the thorn. All the concerns that he had on him about the care and the love and the concern he had for the churches. You know, when you think about grace, you think about Christ. John 1.14 says, The word was made flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace, truth full of grace. That grace is, again, fullness, and we have received grace upon grace. No short supply of grace. There's no shortage. There's no lack. There's no deficiency. It's actually grace that's accumulated. Grace upon grace. Everyday grace. I was talking to a person the other day, and they were just really down about a number of things, and they said, Dave, what can I do that could really possibly somehow enable me to encourage myself in the Lord. I said, that's easy. I said, you just need to start telling yourself the truth. David did it. What did he say in 103 of Psalm? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. David was telling himself the truth. You bless the Lord, and don't forget his benefits. I said, maybe you, it would do you good that if God would grace you to wake up in the morning... That the first thing you could do was, again, I give you a good scripture, maybe just to commit to memory. Psalm 118, verse 24. What does it say? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What a rich theology. What a rich, rich bundle of power and truth in that one verse. I said, if God would grace you to wake up in the morning, be thankful for the gift of grace that he enabled you to wake up. Acknowledge it is his day, he made it, and because it's his day and he made it and his grace is abundant, there's more than enough, over and beyond enough, that you would just simply say, I will rejoice and be glad in it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all the grace abound to you over and beyond so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. 
This is clearly what we see here in the church in Smyrna. And thank you for allowing me to give you the introduction to the message. Many times the introduction is actually longer than the message. Historians tell us that Smyrna was the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. It was a thriving seaport city located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna had a natural landlocked harbor where entire fleets could be sheltered from outside attack. Smyrna was large, a flourishing center of international commerce and trade with a prosperous economy. Smyrna had strong ties to Rome. It was a thriving center for Roman emperor worship. In that day, Caesar was a god to the people. Every citizen was called upon to publicly worship and confess allegiance to Rome's ruler annually. Anyone who refused would be severely punished, immediately imprisoned, and executed by the sword. There was also a tremendous amount of pagan worship in Smyrna, temples to Cybele, Apollo, Cleopatras, uh, Aphrodite, Zeus. They were all built their Greek gods and goddess were openly worshipped. In the most of this wealthy but wicked city was a church in the midst of all that. And this church belonged to Christ. It's his church. It was no easy place to be a Christian. Many believers were persecuted and put to death for their faith in Christ. It was a fact that naming Christ in Smyrna was far more life-threatening than anywhere in Asia. Smyrna. But when you look back there at verse 8, and you see the speaker who was Christ himself to the church, it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. Jesus here identifies himself in such a way that it's designed to uplift and encourage them. What does he say? He said, I'm the first and the last. That simply means he is the eternal one. It's meant to encourage them. It should encourage us. Christ to us is the first and the last. Christ to us is the eternal one. This title identifies Jesus' eternality. Before time existed, Jesus was already in existence. And he will be in existence after all things come to an end. From eternity past to eternity future, Jesus has been, is, and will always be the eternal and infinite one. Nothing within time presents any limitation at all for Christ. Jesus revealed his eternal nature to this church in Smyrna. Because in the midst of their suffering, they needed an internal perspective, and it was needed, most needed. And I want to encourage you today, I really believe that, that this church has come to this place for such a time as this. What a day, what a time in the midst of such confusion and chaos and turmoil around the world and right here in our nation than to come together in the city of Rock Hill in South Carolina and plant a Bible-believing church. 
that church in Smyrna was planted and Christ is the head of that church just as he is the head of Grace Covenant Church right here in Rock Hill, South Carolina. The eternal perspective is most needed. It simply means we do what we do for what counts for eternity. There are people all in this city that need Christ. Whose lives hang in the balance. There are people that are dying today that's never died before. And have gone off into eternity either separated from God, damned to hell, or have gone into eternity with Christ and who will live eternally with him forever and ever. That's an eternal perspective. I think it was David Brainerd or either Jonathan Edwards. I, my mind sort of, my memory's not quite there on remembering what I'm about to say, but one of them said that when they prayed, it could have been David Brainerd because he was known to be the prayer warrior. When Jonathan Edwards was literally kicked out of his church in Northampton, Massachusetts over the Lord's Supper, when his grandfather Stoddard, who started that church, thought that anybody, even a non-believer, could take communion because it would be a great evangelistic outreach to reach him for Christ. Well, Paul took him to task. He took him to the scriptures. He said, no, that's not right. That's not what it says. That would be taking it in a way where we're not rightly discerning the body of Christ. They voted. He was cast out. David Brainerd went with him. They went to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. That's where the famous Norman Rockwell painter was from. Remember the Rockwell paintings? That's where he's from. And they went there and started a mission church to the Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts in the middle part of the 18th century. And those winters where, as you know, the storm that's going up the east coast up in New England is brutal. Can you imagine getting two feet of snow and you got winds that are measured to be like winds from a hurricane? People losing their power. Well, can you imagine something like happening like that back in the 18th century? Could have happened, I don't know. There's a possibility that it could have happened. But in the winter times, David Brain was always one that would get away from everybody and go find a, a place of solitude, and there he would pray. And many times in the winter months, he would go to a place, the only place he could find in the woods would be a place where there was still snow. But as he knelt to pray, he had been there so long, in this one biography, so long praying that the heat from his body literally melted all the snow around him by the time he was through praying. They had an eternal, they had a, a eternal perspective. It was either him or Jonathan. It was said, Lord, please, every time I close my eyes, brand on me, brand in my soul, brand in my mind what counts for eternity. Let me see the lostness of a soul that desperately needs Christ. Help me, God, to be not ashamed of Christ, but that you would give me opportunity for it be your desire and your will that these Indians in Stockbridge would come to know Christ. That the lost in Rock Hill would come to know Christ. 
that my neighbor that's lost would come to know Christ. My parent, my dad, my mom who's lost, I pray they would come to know Christ. This is why this word is such an encouraging word for the church. And it should be a very encouraging word for us because we're talking about Christ. We've got an eternal perspective for Christ. We know why he came. We know why he died. We know why he suffered. We know he was the propitiation that satisfied the holy wrath of God for sinful man. He knew that he was the only one that could take on that sin and bear it and be the sacrifice and that God would accept it and through repentance towards God and faith and trust towards Christ people would come to Christ an internal perspective is most needed what is that eternal perspective that in the midst of trials persecution difficulty suffering is to remember that Jesus existed before time, that he rules over time, and that he will reign for all time. Amen? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Grace Covenant is not Pastor Mark's church. It's not any person in this building's church. This church is Christ's church. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's revealed to us. What we suffer here is insignificant compared to the eternal glory that awaits us there. The other thing that Jesus said here was not only was he the first and the last, but it says he was dead and has come to life. He's alive. He's alive. Christ is alive. The living one, this eternal one who has always been and will always be and will always be died. He died. How can that be? As the eternal God, Jesus Christ, invaded time and history through the womb of a virgin named Mary and God became fully human. The God-man took the form of a bondservant and lived a sinless life. He was then wrongly accused and condemned to die. On a cross as a common criminal, he died a humiliating death. And because he was obedient unto death, God raised him victoriously from the dead. And here's the PowerPoint. It is Jesus' victory over death that causes the church to be victorious in the face of death. The only thing that death can do to any Christian is deliver you to Jesus. That's all it can do. All it can do. That was great encouragement to the church in Smyrna. They were definitely having a very difficult time. Needless to say, Smyrna was a difficult place to be a Christian. They too, they too were obedient unto death, just like Christ. But just like Christ, 
Death could not hold the church of Smyrna in its evil hand. All those who die in Christ will be raised triumphantly because of Christ's eternal victory. Verse 9, Jesus speaks a word of comfort to this church. And we will see that a persecuted church is a pure church. It is, and there was no correction that was needed, just encouragement. There's no reprimand for the church in Smyrna. No sin is corrected. We certainly know that no church is perfect, but there is no standout shortfall seen here in the church of Smyrna. The church at Smyrna found nothing but favor and approval from Christ. So in this case, no correction is needed, just encouragement. That's where I'm going to end. Lord willing, sometime in the future, Pastor Mark will let me, will finish. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing and the truth of your word. Thank you, God. Think of Peter and John when they were told not to speak of Christ. They were told not to minister the truth about Christ or they would be punished severely for it. And they were, but they didn't stop. They continued. But one thing they said is so remarkable. They considered it a blessing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Lord, let that be in our hearts today. The things that are happening here in our nation, the things that have happened over the past, now going on three years, with the mandates to close churches down, what's happening with our dear brothers and those in Canada, even things that continually happen here in America. We find ourselves that if we are not willing to compromise truth when it comes to things that we know that are happening in this nation that are abomination to you, God, it offends you. It's an abomination. But yet because we don't agree, and we don't compromise, and we don't shrink back from standing for the pure truth of Christ, we're considered bigots. We're not tolerant. We hate. And we know, God, that is so far from the truth and the reality of all this. But God, I wonder if we're ready. I wonder if we're going to be prepared that as this begins to intensify and even get worse, as we find ourselves through social media and other venues where we will be censored and very well could be taken off certain outlets and social outlets because we'd be guilty of hate speech. I wonder if we're ready for that. I wonder if we'll really stand up no matter what, knowing that we're never more loving than when we tell people the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. I don't know why we find ourselves sometimes so ashamed and so embarrassed about the gospel. 
When Paul made it very clear, it's the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word pertaining to Christ. God, as the trials and the persecution and the tribulation and the suffering begins to grow and begins to be intensified, I wonder if you'll find us faithful to the cause, faithful in our commitment to Christ, faithful and bold, courageous, with humility, serving Christ no matter what. I pray, God, that you would indeed help us, Lord. In Jesus' name.